Welcome to this week's episode of Fear, Honor, and Interest, the podcast where two straight white guys who went to Yale solve our nation's cultural divisions by talking about Edmund Burke. Here in not quite as miserable as it was last week, Washington, D.C., I'm your host, Charles Bovier. With me on the line from always gorgeous Istanbul is my co-host, David Will. David, how's it going? Doing great, Charles. Thanks for having me. Yeah, yeah. Uh, how's your week been? It's, uh, it's been an interesting week. Um, I mean, here in Turkey, uh, every week is exciting. Um, and I had a, there was a little thrill too from this, uh, G20 meeting, seeing Erdogan, Putin, and Trump, uh, all canoodling at one point. Uh, I don't know if you saw the, uh, saw this image, but it's pretty, Pretty striking uh, picture of uh, where we are in the sort of abstract geopolitical moment, and then you know the fact that I'm like right there under Erdogan's arm is uh, always comforting. Ah, uh, yes. Well, here in the U.S., uh, the coverage almost didn't include Erdogan at all. Uh, it was it was all just the Putin-Trump uh, sort of like handshake sitting next to each other image. Right. Uh, and a lot of it. Uh, has still been talking about how um, Putin made a joke about the media in the room making fun of Trump, and they all had a shared laugh about how much they would love to suppress the media. And uh, <laughs> this was a little controversial. Um, and uh, so while we've, we've had that element of it, too, people are also still talking about uh, Trump's uh, speech in Poland, where he was also seen to have... Um, endorse the authoritarian slide of the government yeah so we we haven't really mentioned turkey much in the the U, normal u.s coverage but uh they've definitely been talking a lot about the putin and uh poland moments yeah i mean putin you know well so i actually think that uh for the purposes of our podcast um where we try to think through ephemeral issues through, uh, with the benefit of lasting conceptual frameworks, um, Turkey is actually a really instructive set of problems uh, to look through because America has gotten issues in Turkey wrong for the wrong reasons and right for the wrong reasons pretty consistently. Like, we never... Um, you know, when Erdogan first came into power, for example, uh, we misunderstood what he was, but supported him, or at least held out the hand of partnership to him in good faith, uh, which is what we should have done, but we did it for the wrong reasons. And um, similarly, um, now some of the some, but not, I mean, not all. It's not as incompetent as, you know, I shouldn't be so dismissive right off the bat. Um, but some of the we'll criticism have time to get now, dismissive later. Well, right. Uh, some of the criticism now is equally um, misdirected and off base, um, where we were late to see this growing authoritarian trend and now it looks like it's all the same uh, red hot crisis sweeping across 
the world where we see you know, Poland and Marine Le Pen and Brexit and all these um, threats to the established order coming from the populist authoritarian right. And we think, oh, yeah, Turkey, it's just like that. It's the same. Uh, how could we have been so foolish? And then um, at least in the sort of media blogosphere, uh, the sort of chattering classes, that seems to be about as far as it goes. And the, um, you know, the fundamental political issues of what constitutes the body politic in Turkey, um, that's the type of question that we're asking, right, is what is the body politic? How can we keep the body from tearing itself apart? That's what we want. That's the question we want to answer for America. And um, no one's really asking that. No one's asking that question and attempting to approach it in any deep way when they're, um, you know, just trying to write another column to push out for this week's news in Turkey. Right. And, um, you know, that that's about the, the depth of analysis that we get. Um, so, again, you know, patterns of thought, right? Like the same patterns of thought that we're trying to apply. Uh, to the U.S., you know, we can we can see the same uh, benefit from applying those patterns to Turkey. I think right. now, I mean, just to give our listener a little context, um, you know, do you have an immediate, just a, at least a single specific uh, thought there on how we've been portraying Turkey versus what you've seen that they can look at and say, look, here specifically is a part of the coverage that has been misleading. Well, not intentionally um, misleading, but misleading. Right. So I mean, one of the classic issues that America gets wrong in the rest of the world, uh, whatever, you know, the headline is, whatever the region is, um, is the scrappy freedom fighter mm. issue that we want to see and support the little guy, the rebel, uh, the oppressed minority. Um, and there is... I mean, when it comes to Turkish history, obviously, this is something that I've spent a lot of time focusing on as someone who, you know, studied Turkish history from the Ottoman era. Uh, so I'm going to try to, res you know, resist the urge to dive into, you know, 300 years of history. But um, but there is a very long history of American focus on oppressed minorities in the Middle East. For most of history of American history, that oppressed minority has been Christian. And there's been an explicit, we are Christians, we care about Christians, we don't care about Muslims. Um, now, uh, with the Kurds, we see in the Kurds what we want to see. We see, you know, these beautiful women with their, you know, with their long braids and AK-47s fighting ISIS. And we think, or at least, you know, I'm not going to go to that level of... Um, uh, superficial, we think this. It's just, you know, the media sees that this is an eye-catching thing, and so they present it to us in order to sell their, uh, you know, get their page views. Um, and the result is that there is an, an image that I think a lot of Americans buy into of uh, the Kurds as a progressive, natural ally of America. Um and so the Kurds, and they think, okay, well, vis-a-vis -vis Turkey, the Kurds are the oppressed mm -hmm. minority. Um, oh, look, they empower women. Look at Erdogan. 
Erdogan isn't the um, democratic reformer we thought. He's an Islamist. Islamist, you know, so there's a natural opposition between religious uh, right-wing populist and empower, you know, uh, empowered women, ethnic minority freedom fighters, right? And for a lot of Americans, that seems to be the way uh, that the issue is naturally digested um, as it comes up in any particular media report. Whereas, um, you know, what is the body, again, what is the body politic in Turkey? The body politic in Turkey has been riven internally and battered from the outside for a very long time. And it is, despite that, um, relatively stable because of its sense of being surrounded by enemies. And when the Kurds think about the PKK, there's a lot of division, but a lot of Kurds prefer to remain in Turkey and don't want to uh, succumb to the romanticism of the rugged uh, freedom fighter. And to the extent that we romanticize something that Turkish citizens, both of ethnic Turkish origin and Kurdish origin, uh, have to live with the grim realities of every day. You know, this is just an, another issue that um, American romanticism uh, about real foreign policy issues uh, simply obscures and um, uh, and misunderstands. Hmm. That's, so that's, that's, I mean, the, the biggest one that is probably the easiest to explain without a lot of background is this uh, way in which, you know, the state, right-wing, authoritarian, bad, the Kurdish minority, freedom fighter, good, honest, underdog. Okay, we obviously have to support the underdog. And it's, it's a lot more complicated than that. Yeah, I mean, that is that is 100% the coverage that I see here. Um, yeah. Even from, I mean, and that might be a thing more broadly applied to Western journalism than even just American journalism. I mean, you know, The Economist portrays it somewhat similarly, although obviously their perspective is a little bit, uh, they, they're not quite as simplistic, but you still get the, the same sense from these sources of media. Yeah, well, and um, yeah, this goes back to something that um, I thought about yesterday that, you know, or not yesterday. Well, I was thinking about it all week because the last time we spoke, uh, we talked about taboos. Yes. And what sort of things are you allowed to question? And when does the question begin to tread on sacred ground, which triggers a reaction of, you know, for you to even question this set of ideas, you must be a terrible person. Um, and, you know... It takes a certain level of trust to have a conversation without constantly having to cover, you know, cover yourself and right. and say, well, you know, I'm not, um, I'm not apologizing for the nearly century of, um, you know, forced assimilation by the Kur the by the Turkish state of the Kurdish minority. I'm not saying that there is 
no merit to the Kurdish minority organizing and fighting against that oppression. Um, I'm not saying that, you know, decent people can at times feel compelled to take up violence when political opportunities are blocked. You know, I mean, all of those things should go without saying. Um, but uh, that being the case, there is also a uh, romanticization of violence uh, when it when we imagine that it comes from below and challenges, you know, the central authority, um, which I think is a particular weakness of the left. And as you say, not just in America, all across the world. And, um, you know, that, or when I say the left, you know, that it is true of whatever we might call the left, but people of educated left leaning inclinations who, are probably the ones writing most uh, right. news pieces, whether in London or Germany or um, Paris or America. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That I can I can definitely see that um, being an issue. And but even when you talk about the left, the right in America to a certain extent takes a similar view when it comes to other countries. Um, I mean, it's. I, I. I feel like the romanticization of the Kurds seems to me to have been even stronger on the right in terms of commentary in America than it has been on the yeah. left. Well, you know, there is some some truth. I mean, if America is looking for a partner and an ally um, in the Middle East, the Kurds have been that partner and ally uh, in Iraq for a very long time. And they are looking pretty closely, you know, to be the best or one of the best partners and allies in Syria and Iraq in the fight against ISIS. Um, so, you know, I certainly, uh, I mean, as much as I would criticize some, um, you know, editorial opinion page contributor who has no skin in the game and is just trying, you know, sitting in their armchair, stroking their chin, thinking about the structure of the Middle East and saying, ah, oh, yes, the Kurds, you know, they are our natural allies. They share our values um, without actually understanding, without speaking any Kurdish, without speaking any of the regional languages, um, without having much of an, a, a real sense of the history of the region and just going off of their superficial sense of things. Criticize them quite harshly. I would not criticize for a moment, you know, uh, people coming from a military background, for example, who may very well believe and be right to think that they owe their lives, you know, to the support of Kurdish partners. Um, you know, I, I can't criticize their uh, sense of that being the case on a personal level. I would simply suggest that um, it does get more complicated if we're uh, moving from, you know, individual moments through, uh, the history of our armed forces participation in that region um, to, you know, thinking, thinking hard thoughts about what a partner and an ally actually means and what we are looking for and what we are um, allowing ourselves to be convinced to see, you know, by a very clever PR strategy, which um, the, you know, various actors amongst the Kurds have been very good at, uh, at their PR. Yeah. Um, 
<laughs> it's the um, there's a, a saying I heard once that um, I can't remember whose law it was on the internet. It was that um, the amount of passion in an issue is inversely correlated with the amount of actual knowledge available, and yeah. that seems to be true for most things. You get very passionate when you hear very little about something, and then the more complicated you learn it becomes. Sometimes the level of passion decreases, but it certainly makes it seem you, you have that initial uh, well of energy that says, like, I'm going to go make a change for this because this is a, an issue that is simple and I can go and I can fix this. And you see, well, you can't do what your normal instinct was. You can't just say those are the good guys, those are the bad guys. You have to look at this part, too, and you have to understand this underlying history. And by the time you start to get through all of that, you're a little drained. I mean, the energy you were going to have to fix the problem can end up being consumed trying to understand the problem. That's a great point, um, just that last formulation, because um, we, uh, I mean, that's like the history of the world, you know, in a nutshell. And uh, the, how do you, you know, if you, if you wait to understand and think through every step of some endeavor that you're going to start, you'll never start. Right. Um, I mean, there's a reason that products are, uh, you know, are shipped in Silicon Valley before they're done. And, you know, there's constant debugging because once it's, you know, if, if you wait to get all the bugs out, someone else will take all your market share yeah. because they'll get the same idea and they'll push it out, you know, while it's good enough, not perfect. And this is why deadlines um, are important. I mean, deadlines force you right. to result in a product. Um, right. That's one of the reasons it's useful to say, hey, let's try to podcast every week Sunday morning for Eastern Standard Time <laughs> because it ensures yeah. that you do it. Otherwise, we could sit here talking, well, well, how would we like to formulate this? How would we? I mean, before we started doing our first recording of this, we spent a lot of time going over what are the sort of things we want to do. And a lot of that was useful information. But the best way to figure out what you're doing and how to change it is to do it. And that's why we're doing <laughs> this podcast and people who think. The first one was incredibly rough because we went on for 97 minutes um, or that this one is a little rough because maybe it's not perfectly organized. Well, you have to do this to get more organized. It's um, right. something that happened to me that is a discussion that I've had um, with people. Um, so for our, our listener, we're going to assume there's one. Um, <laughs> uh, I, I had a spinal cord injury uh, in the last two months of high school. And so I went on to start college that fall and it was really really rough because it was especially when you're on a college campus where i mean the building next door to mine was um you know from the 1700s uh it, it it's an issue in terms of wheelchair access there were a lot of buildings and a lot of things i wanted to do that i couldn't do because they weren't wheelchair accessible by the time we graduated i'd had four years to get in shape for this to understand how to do this I could get into pretty much any building I needed to. It might be unpleasant, but I could do it. And if it were important, I'd do it. And so people sometimes asked if I regretted that I didn't take the first year off and just get, you know, just do that sort of uh, get better at that sort of thing and then go um, and not have these problems. But the, the truth of it is, if I'd sat around at home feeling sorry for myself for a year, I never would have gotten the skills necessary to go and you know, climb up those flights of stairs to get into those buildings. You have to do it. You just have to go through the two or three years of slowly building up your skills to get to that point. 
And it's like that. It's like that with anything, and it's like that with this podcast. You can't sit back and theorize about it. You have to. You have to go out and get involved. And what you said about the the armchair theorizing of intellectuals sitting at home who don't speak Kurdish and have never been to the region applies to pretty much everything. There's a point at which uh, sitting around and thinking about what it would be like to be in another situation can only get you so far. And the marginal return on spending any time in a region talking to random people is just going to be huge at that point. Yep, absolutely. And otherwise you run the risk, which is at the 20 minute mark here, a good time to be disciplined and segue into our main topic, uh, just like we were supposed to. Yep. Um, the, uh, that uh, Donald Trump, it, during the election, spends all of this time saying, we're going to fix health care, and it's going to be so easy. It'll be so easy, you won't believe it. And he gets into office, and after a month or two, he says, wow, this health care thing is more complicated than anybody thought. And yep. now, he does seem to be the only person in the entire world who didn't realize health care was complicated. Um, but he said the same thing with North Korea. He talks to uh, Xi Jinping, Jinping for... Um, you know, ten minutes. And I listened for ten minutes, and I realized it's not so. It's not so easy. And it's like, yes, no wonder he was so forceful in his uh, proclamations for how easy and great things would be. He didn't know anything. Um, <laughs> which is taking us to our main topic for today, which is um, the state of the Republican Party and the conservatives and the right in America today. How it got there, how it could get out, what we'd like to see. Um, last week, uh, some of you may recall that I referred to uh, the single greatest political, domestic political story of our lifetime as being the intellectual and moral collapse of the GOP. And uh, for a podcast that started out by saying we don't want to just be this partisan horse race nonsense, um, that might have seemed a little incongruous, that uh, it's being a little uh, overly partisan there. But uh, I want to take today to have us explain why that's not the case. Uh, why this is this is not something that I say lightly. Um, and uh, to make our case for why um, I believe that this is so. Uh, so uh, it it'll I'll start a little bit by by talking a little bit more about my background and why it would have been fairly easy for me to have ended up as a conservative Republican in America. Um, I grew up in a family where my immediate parents were, um, you know, liberal, but not crazy out there. But all of our extended family was very conservative, um, very much Republican Party people. And uh, I even grew up in very Republican suburban area in northeast Ohio and um, was one of, I think, three people in my high school class to have wanted Al Gore to win in 2000. Too young to vote, but... About three of us out of a hundred actually wanted Al Gore to win in 2000. That's that's the skew we're talking about here. And so I come from this uh, this upper middle class background in a very Republican area, and I myself was one of those. Um, I went to a high school that required coat and tie every day, um, and while I would not have worn coat and tie every day at a normal high school, I wouldn't be that different from the conservative uh, young conservative people who want to dress like that anyway. Um, and I would have, uh, and I had that great love for some of the historical discussions that you would have seen from a William F. Buckley, for instance. So there was a lot, uh, there were a lot of things I would have had in common with the right. And a lot of people just assumed I was a Republican, not just because of the area that I was in, 
but because of a lot of these characteristics of me and the fact that I liked following the rules and didn't rebel against the authority at the school and so forth, but I wasn't. I was actually considered um, pretty liberal, although uh, entertainingly enough, after we came back from a year of college, suddenly I was the most right-wing person, despite having not changed a single position. Um, but anyway, so I ended up with a point of view that was you know, very different from where my background could have gone. It's not that I was in some hostile environment where I was trained to hate Republicans from a young age. Um, I couldn't stomach what I saw the party doing when I, as a young political person, started looking at politics. Um, as somebody who was born in 1984, um, the first few political moments that I was aware of as, as, as a growing man uh, would start with the first political moment I really remember was the Republican takeover of Congress in 1994. And that was then followed by a government shutdown over a bunch of arguments that was not something that, you know, played well to the Republicans' favor. And then that was followed by the impeachment of Bill Clinton, which, I mean, I don't know people who are saying Bill Clinton was a great stand-up guy about all of that. But the consensus view was that they were, you know, bringing the country's business to a halt over a bunch of uh, petty political vengeance for a person they simply hated on a personal level while also seeing the immense hypocrisy of the leaders who uh, drove the impeachment and were also uh, involved in some number of affairs themselves. This was then followed by George W. Bush, who, of course, uh, led us to war in Iraq for um, reasons that turned out not to be accurate. I'm not going to say that he lied, but the reasons turned out not to be accurate. And then his administration was just a gigantic disaster in various ways and left the country in, in quite a bad state. So somebody who grew up in this period seeing these as what the Republican Party stood for, um, it, 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 it started off in this very petty zone that I saw, this hypocritical clampdown on sexual activity. And I don't just mean that Bill Clinton had an affair. That is what they went after him for um, initially. I know that eventually they got him under oath and said, oh, it's about obstruction of justice, a view they no longer think is possible for a president to commit, I might add. Yeah, um, exactly. yeah. Um, but a, a big part of it, too, was gay rights. I mean, one of the other first political moments I remember was the fallout over Bill Clinton wanting gays to be able to serve in the military and us ending up with the don't ask, don't tell policy. I remember walking down uh, into the kitchen one morning and that being what my parents were watching on the news, being very confused because I didn't understand anything that they were right. talking about. Um, but uh, that was, you know, right from the beginning, the Republicans set themselves up in my mind as the people who were clamping down on things that to somebody from my generation didn't make any sense. Opposition to gay rights never made any sense to someone from my generation. Um, so that's why I had a negative view of them from things that they did, not from the background that I was in, but from things that they did, I ended up with a, a negative view towards them and their behavior in subsequent years has been very bad. Um, it's important for me to remember when I talked to some of my older conservative relatives that, um, for them, the formative moments of conservatism were when they, uh, pushed back against the left going too far in the sixties and for when Reagan came in and, and, um, well, there's a lot that can actually be done to debate Reagan's record. Um, I can nonetheless understand why people greatly admired him and thought that he ushered in a great new era and improvement and renewal for America. And so if your formative years include that, you're going to have a very different perspective of this party than somebody whose formative years begin with the 94 takeover and with it, the rise of Rush Limbaugh and Fox News.
Uh, David, do you, what are your thoughts on how you came to the views you have of where the Republican Party is, and what is it about how they behave that you find problematic? I Yeah, I totally agree with your characterization um, in general of what it was like to grow up at that time in a white, upper-middle-class educated family. Um, I think, uh, obviously, a lot of people have different you know, like obviously, there's no way that we can claim to speak for our generation, even even our demographic. Um, but I think as a young person, you know, you're just you're just absorbing. You're constantly absorbing, and you're asking questions of what you absorb. Um, and the degree of rank hypocrisy uh, that I mean, you know, power requires a certain amount of hypocrisy to you know, to cling on to. Um, but the advantage of being young is that when you're seeing it, you're not initially making excuses for it. You're just observing it. Um, and so the Republican brand, um, just was defined by that hypocrisy. Um, as I started to watch politics, um, you know, for me, uh, the, you know, the takeover of Congress. So my, I mean, my first, um, real political memory, um, political in the sense of sort of world historic was the invasion of, was, um, Desert Shield. Mm, yes. Uh, so, you know, American arms, uh, going into the desert and protecting the desert. You know, I was, at that point I was like four, you know, so I wasn't that sophisticated in what I, I, I just remember thinking, about what an evocative um, concept a desert shield was. And, um, you know, take everything I say about romanticism as someone who was deeply romantic about American force in the world, you know, as a child, uh, and has learned to grow out of that. Um, but the, you know, the issue that you brought up about gay marriage, I think, is a good way um, to get into our perhaps unique um, vision, or at least the vision that you know, I think will typify our approach, um, which is that for someone of our generation, um, you know, homosexual love, you know, is just love, and uh, homosexual sex is just sex, and whether or not we um, are, you know, whether or not we are wired that way um, or not, it just has nothing to do with our approach to other people who are wired that way. Um, but, you know, and, this, and so that's the starting point. And when we see things like um, don't ask, don't tell, you know, it, it, just, it just seems bizarre. You know, what's what's the problem? What's the holdup? I totally sign on to everything that you uh, described in that respect. Um, but the gay marriage uh, campaign presented me with an interesting, um, not exactly challenge, but a refinement uh, to my perspective, which was that some very radical uh, anti- establishment, anti-traditionalist friends of mine 
basically came out as against marriage equality as themselves gay, you know, uh, a gay man and a, uh, a gay woman, both friends of mine, uh, described this view because they were against marriage. You know, they were against the institution of marriage as a traditional uh, legacy of an oppressive history um, that was just as outdated as any bigotry towards homosexuals. And, you know, to me, um, the, you know, the generational view that we describe, right? The thing about a generational uh, mechanism, a generational uh, social, um, I mean, the, the fact that our society is made up of generations that interact cyclically with themes and ideas is that the cycle will turn and there will be a new flavor to, um, you know, the events of the day and the reaction of every generation to those events. And, you know, traditionalism, conservatism, uh, will never go away because we have this issue where, you know, young conservatives, young people who are of a conservative bent can look at gay marriage and say, finally, everyone has access to an institution that holds our society together. You know, this is like, think of, think of, you know, someone who, uh, think of a 15 year old person who 40 years ago would have grown up to be David Brooks. You know, who are they going to grow up to be? That person sees gay marriage and thinks, great, gay people deserve to have families. Families are important. Families bring people together. Marriage brings people together. Fam marriage brings families together. Um, what a stupid flaw to intentionally reject 10% of the population from a fundamental pillar of our traditional society. You know, that's what an enlightened conservative, you know, conserv again, conservatively inclined person right. who is not, uh, who hasn't signed on to the creed of the contemporary um, political party that claims to represent conservatism. I mean, I think that's how that person would react to this issue. Whereas the, you know, flame-throwing, uh, sort of anarchically-minded, um, radical, radically inclined person would say, um, you know, burn it all down. Marriage is just another institution that binds us. You know, we people who are noblest when we are freest. Um, you know, the sort of yeah, you, know, you mentioned Burke at the beginning in your in your sign off, and again, this is one of these um, you know these uh, clashes between Burke and Rousseau. Uh, that if you're you know if you're inclined to read Rousseau and think, yeah, this is awesome, you know, people are noble when they are free. Uh, it is society that makes us uh, you know twisted and and um, sadistic towards each other. Um, then that's the view you're going to have, um, and. You know, at some level, I think it. There's only progress when people react in each of these generations honestly to the issues that they are presented with. Um, 
And so I think there is a lot of, there, there is still room for hope that we can progress to a more um, prosperous society where more people have more access to the kinds of institutions that have made us all better, made most of American society better off um, for most of American history. Um, but we're at this crossroads where, again, you know, to grasp the, the brass ring of power, uh, the Republican Party has done things that aren't even honest to their own uh, conservative traditions. Yeah. And that's the sort of thing that pushes me and I think you as well from how you described um, into kind of a no man's land because uh, with the Democratic Party effectively being the center to, to far left party, you know, the, the Democratic Party is basically trying to have a coalition inside its own party of the, you know, center to center right with Joe Manchin and Heidi Heitkamp, people like that, uh, to the far left. And um, people who just want this, uh, you know, a center, maybe center right position to be sanely articulated um, are sort of pushed to the Democrats only because the Republicans are no longer pulling those people towards their party. Yeah. Their, um, yeah. So I, I totally agree with you on the way you described um, your interaction as a young man to the events of the day. Um, I think that those, you know, these issues are going to recur because conservative ideas are more sophisticated and intelligent than a lot of the people who call themselves conservatives who articulate those ideas. And the same is true of, um, um, let's call them radical ideas that, uh, you know, radicals and anarchists, you know, various labels, uh, people who you know, give themselves various labels are a lot stupider than a lot of those ideas, yeah. which is going to ensure that the ideas recur and continue to attract uh, new generations over time. Exactly. And uh, just to provide some additional background to our listener who may or may not be familiar with Edmund Burke, um, he was uh, a British politician, he was from Ireland, um, who happened to be one of the voices in favor of some reconciliation with the American colonies before we declared independence. Um, but uh, he is sort of considered the father of uh, the father of modern conservatism because of his writings, particularly about the French Revolution, um, where uh, he talked about, well, how the revolution was probably going to go awry, and it ended up going awry in exactly the way he said it would. Um, <laughs> he was big on institutions, big on the fact that you've had these institutions that have been around for a while. If they've been around for a while, this presumably means that they have some value and they have some lessons to teach us, and that they are this sort of structural force for our society. And uh, that is something that I agree with as a basic philosophy. How you apply that from there is where I think conservatism goes right or wrong. Conservatism going right is exactly what David said, where you look at marriage as a pillar of society. What we saw during the gay marriage debates was a lot of conservatives saying that marriage is fundamental to society. It is so important that uh, its destruction would just wreak havoc on our society. It would be a civilizational problem for the institution of marriage to dissolve. And um, 
I think they overstated the case a little bit, but fundamentally, I agree with that notion. The difference is instead of saying that um, instead of saying that marriage is so fundamental you cannot touch any part of it, my thought was open it up to everybody. It is an important thing, and at the same time, we were hearing conservatives um, criticize gay people by saying they were too promiscuous, and then also tell them they couldn't get married. Exactly. And there's there's a fundamental tension there, and. When you're trying to be consistent with a view that the institution of marriage is a stabilizing force, is a good force, is something that improves your life, the conclusion that I feel you would more logically be drawn to is that you want gay people inside the institution of marriage. But instead, um, and you know, we're talking a lot about gay marriage here, and that seems that might seem a little odd in 2017. Why are we focusing on that when there's all these other issues? But we have to remember that. In 2004, in the presidential election, that was the issue. That was They were talking about how that was the most important thing. That was how they were going to get people to show up and vote by being against gay marriage. And it was this giant race to see who could be the most anti-gay marriage. And even the Democratic candidates had to say they, they preferred civil unions and not gay marriage itself. The Democrats did not get off perfectly for this. They had a lot of political cowardice in not saying what we knew they believed. Obama later came out, of course, and said, yeah, I believe in gay marriage. We all knew he believed in gay marriage. But in the 2008 campaign, he had to say he didn't because that was how toxic the issue was back then. And now, you know, nine years later, the entire country has gay marriage and it hasn't, and it's been just fine for two years. We've just had this. And all of these dire predictions were so obviously lies that nothing happened as a result of it. Um, yeah, well, I think I have to push back a little bit. Oh, yeah, yeah, sure. No, that's what think, we're about. We're about being right. accurate and pushing back. Right. Um, I think, uh, I mean, I, I would certainly agree that there is no real problem. I mean, just for the reasons I just described, I think it is uh, absolutely fantastic that um, gay Americans are welcomed into an institution that indeed, you know, it doesn't work for everyone all the time. You know, people get divorced and it's not like the worst thing to happen, obviously. Um, But there are, there are benefits to, um, to this social institution uh, that in its modern form has basically taken uh, on the role of, you know, a deliberate decision by families to come together. Families are important deliberate choice to meld your families together. It's a big step for a lot of people and it brings comfort and support to their lives and welcoming, you know, gay Americans into that institution, uh, obviously has been, I think an unalloyed good. However, um, I think the fact that, you know, the, the fact that Republicans, uh, so significantly came home for Trump in the election Part of the reason that that was the case is the open Supreme Court seat, at the time, the open Supreme Court seat. And um, I think gay marriage, you know, the goalposts kind of moved where it's no longer the people were talking about gay marriage per se. They were talking about being forced to bake a cake for gay yeah. people or being forced, you know, to go and take their uh, picture Which, as a wedding Which, just to be quick, quick, clear, I think that falls under the category of anti-discrimination laws as the issue rather than gay marriage itself. Um, I think right, you're taking the point, is, the point is that, that shit, yeah. no, but I think, I think, you know, the, there's a, I mean, all these, all these political symbols, yes. um, uh, blend into each other in this kind of web where each symbol, you know, acquires its meaning based on, um, it's 
interacting with other uh, symbols in, in a kind of network effect. And um, I think the, you know, a lot of people felt that the gay, gay marriage, uh, I mean, a lot of American religious conservatives uh, felt that the gay marriage issue had been um, rammed through by an unresponsive Washington elite. You know, I mean, it, it came through as a Supreme Court decision. I, I think um, that that's um, a compromise. I mean, it's it's not an unalloyed good because it's it is it is good that a right that all Americans should have been able to enjoy starting years and years ago um, was granted as quickly as possible to as many Americans as possible. That's a good thing. Um, however, the process by which it was done, I think it, you know, it, it's better when these things come uh, through legislative process. Um, it's yeah. I, so I don't, I don't completely well. disagree with, uh, with what you're saying here. I mean, I, I would push back a little on the notion that gay marriage, I mean, I believe the Supreme court seat played a huge role in, um, the election for Trump people who were wavering. Um, but I disagree that gay marriage was one of the fact was what was a large factor in it as people. I'm, it has been my observation and I could be somewhat inaccurate. I know there are people who did much wailing and gnashing, uh, gnashing of teeth and rending of garments when the Supreme court case came down. But the, the view that I had, and I could be wrong about this, but what it seemed to me was they complained a lot when it happened. They brought up the occasional symbol like uh, Kim Davis, I'm just not going to issue these licenses because it, even though that's my job, I don't agree with it. Um, you know, that stuff existed, but to me, it looked like they were sometimes doing that as a sort of, this is our tribal marker to get people a little upset, but gay marriage as an issue seemed to have like, as something people actually talked about, largely just dissipated after, uh, you know, more than a few months after the seat. That was my observation. I could be a little bit wrong about that. Um, that was how it seemed to me. Uh, yeah, my yeah, point, that's, I mean, that's I'm the part that to... I would push back on a bit. I do think that other social issues and the Supreme Court were a huge factor there. But I actually want to uh, make a quick uh, observation of mine that um, regarding... If I, if I may yes. just try to split the difference on that on that last issue, because I'm not trying to say that gay marriage is the constant theme that people are thinking about again and again as they engage in politics. I'm saying that um, gay marriage bled into the broader issue of the Supreme, you know, Supreme court culture war. No one's listening to us, which brings us back to Burke because it's talking about the Supreme court's role as an institution. The thing that I think may be where I view the Supreme court, particularly on gay marriage differently than other people do, um, is that, uh, they say, we say it would be better if this went through a vote. And I do agree with that. It's just that, um, from my perspective, um, and I know this is not what was intended, but this is what was said. And this is going to get to an issue that um, I don't want to digress too far, but I do want to quickly get this idea out there, that it went to a vote when the 14th Amendment went to a vote. because And people may say, well, they were, there's no way they were mm-hmm. thinking about that when they passed the 14th Amendment. But when you go back and look at things like the Declaration of Independence, they said all men are created equal. And we know they didn't mean that. We know they meant all white men of English heritage are created equal. Um, but they said this broad statement, and then that principle from the broad statement has been getting applied in more logically consistent ways ever since. And it's been like that with the 14th Amendment. You said we get the equal protection of the laws. 
and um, you didn't when you said that you didn't mean it. You wanted it to only mean this wink, wink. Just certain people get certain things. But if you make if you pass something that is a broad case for equality, then in my mind, you've you've had your vote on equality. It's just that you weren't following it. What um, Antonin Scalia said in the Supreme Court case was, are you implying that ever since the 14th Amendment was passed, people have been you know, running around violating the Constitution for 100 years and they didn't know it? And my response to that is yes, because that's what happened with Plessy versus Ferguson. That's what happened when you got to Brown versus Board. The 14th Amendment set out these rights and then the states just blatantly violated it for 100 years. That's exactly what they did. And that's exactly what Brown v. Board was saying. So to my mind, there was a vote on the 14th Amendment. And if you if you want to take um, a sort of a very if you wanted the rights that you gave to be very narrow, you should not have voted for a broad statement is basically my point. If you're going to be intentionally hypocritical by making a broad statement that people will be like, yes, yes, that is a good philosophy. It's harder to get people behind. We the people specifically white people like you can't put in all of these amendments, you can't put all of these parenthetical asides into the Declaration of Independence to make it clear who you want it to apply to. Um, th- like That is a broad thing they did. And the other element to people who are not um, uh, familiar with, with, with all of these issues is that um, there's an actual amendment in the Constitution that was in the Bill of Rights that says that rights that are not specifically enumerated are not presumed to not exist just because we didn't enumerate them. There was an argument over whether there should even be a Bill of Rights because they said these just are rights that people have under our natural law philosophy. People have these rights. And if you start to spell out the right to uh, to free speech, the right to bear arms, then people are going to assume that these other rights that we don't have time to include are not there. So they put in an amendment that said, look, we're spelling these out, but but do not take this to mean that other rights don't exist just because they're not mentioned. And then we come up to a situation now where people just pretend that's not even in there. They just pretend that they say, well, show me in the Constitution where it says gay marriage. Well, I'll point you to the Constitution where it says just because it doesn't say gay marriage doesn't mean there isn't gay marriage. So that's an institutional argument that I would make um, in favor of that type of Supreme Court decision. Uh, This does go a bit with an overriding philosophy of mine, which is when you make broad statements of principle – you should expect to follow those principles. You should try to be logically consistent. And the principles that they laid out, when logically applied, in my mind, led to gay marriage. People may disagree on that, but it is my personal take on this and where gay marriage and gay issues have come apart is that they serve the worst of human instincts by getting people emotionally um, just upset or angry or having a visceral level of disgust on the part of people who just think that we're just uncomfortable on a visceral level by seeing two men kissing. Um, that's, that's, I think that that is a big part of it that you can get, you can have your Fox news drum up your outrage because this is a thing that causes a visceral reaction in a lot of people. And I think that that's why they let the emotional element of it and the opera. And this is, I think, to try to drive, bring this back home to what we're talking about, how did the GOP get into the state where Donald Trump would be their nominee, is that um, I think that they made too many compromises on principle in order for political expediency and winning elections by getting people mad about issues like gay marriage. And I want to remind everyone listening that it was 2003. Our freshman year of college is when Lawrence v. Texas came down. 
in 2003, which, I mean, 14 years ago may seem like a long bit of time, and in many ways the world has changed a lot, but it also hasn't changed that much because we're dealing with a lot of the same people in politics. In 2003, it wasn't just gay marriage that the Supreme Court was, was, was talking about. They had a case in front of them about a Texas law that was being prosecuted that made it illegal for gay people to have sex consensually in their own home. That was the and, and Republicans, the Republicans that we were watching at the time, the ones who are still the people that we see on TV today, they were in favor of that law staying in place. They were in favor of it being illegal for gay men to have sex consensually in their own home. And it's easy to forget that because they want us to forget that. Because right. when we saw the dominoes fall on gay marriage, when you look at the public opinion poll support, it's hard to think of any issue that we've ever dealt with that has changed so much so quickly. And we saw just how intellectually dishonest what they were doing was when we went from 2004, a year defined by bringing out the votes by being anti-gay marriage, to a situation where they don't talk about it. Once the dominoes started to fall, they said, all right, fine, this is no longer a thing we'll talk about other than when we try to get specific religious conservatives upset, we'll talk about it. But they didn't make it an issue anymore. It, they, the, the, the speed with which they dropped it showed their own hypocrisy, in my opinion. And I think that where the GOP has come today versus where it was 50 years ago, um, I want to. There have been a lot of comparisons lately um, to William F. Buckley and where the conservatives are now. Uh, for people less familiar with this, William F. Buckley comes in and starts National Review, and he wants to get an intellectual conservatism out there. And there's a lot William F. Buckley did, including on gay issues. We've seen some of his fights on TV with Gore Vidal, where he was not a gentleman. Let's put it that way. Um, but on the whole, he did a very good job of kicking out the crazy conspiracy people, the John Birch Society. There have been a number of articles about that uh, recently. Um, Brett Stevens just had one in the New York Times where he was expressing his fury at Sean Hannity being awarded a William F. Buckley Award in Media Excellence because uh, William F. Buckley, the people William F. Buckley kicked out are the Sean Hannity types. And the problem <laughs> that the GOP has had is it started to create intellectual foundations with Buckley and people like him it wasn't all Buckley. And it, it took a moral stand that said it could be useful for us to have these crazy conspiracy John Birch people in it. Um, but we're going to push back against that. We're going to kick them out. We're going to get rid of the anti-Semitism that had plagued conservatism at that point. They did. They they did a careful job of getting rid of those things, of putting forth real ideas. And part of the problem, in my view, of what happened is that they were victims of their own success. Reagan comes in. The tax rate gets lowered from 70 to, uh, I think it was down to, what, 50 when he left office. Eventually, under Bill Clinton, uh, you know, you had it down to, was it, 34.6, and then Bush put in these gigantic tax cuts that, um, you know, uh, no, he had it to 39.6, then Bush lowered it to 34.6 with his giant tax cuts. And so prior to our political lifetime, the big issue was, um, you know, these top marginal tax rates of 70%, getting them down to four, basically 40%. That's a huge difference to the people who are paying 70 versus 40% of their income. But when we started to become politically active, that debate had already been had. The deregulation had already happened. And then we start seeing the low-hanging fruit of deregulation and tax cuts has gone away. And now they keep applying that same philosophy without adjusting for changed circumstances. And the Bush tax cuts to lower the rates from 39.6 to 34.6 or whatever it was, was a, it exploded the deficits, the things they claimed to care about. 
Um, and so I and and so I think the problem is they, they had this infusion of ideas and this kicking out the people who were problematic, like the anti-Semites, with Buckley. And then as they started to get successful, their ideas were no longer as valid because they'd achieved they hit mar- they hit re- they hit diminishing marginal returns basically, and then it no longer made sense to keep applying what they were doing, and they started. You have the rise of Fox News and Rush Limbaugh and these more emotive issues, um, and that that led to a bit of a, a, a spiral, which culminated. I hope it culminated. If it gets any worse from here, we're in trouble. <laughs> with Donald Trump getting the election last year, and Donald Trump is the manifestation in one person of intellectual and moral bankruptcy being um, filled in instead by just pure emotional, visceral anger. And um, and he also, in, in this dark parallel of Buckley, is the one who brought the crazy conspiracy people like Breitbart and the Back. right out of the darkness and into the light. And so um, when we talk about good conservatism, you know, obviously I don't endorse everything Buckley believed, but that attitude of Buckley is the good kind, that attitude of Edmund Burke that says these institutions are important, um, that attitude is good. They've been led astray, I think, over time by drifting away from those core concepts in favor of individual expediency, taking gay marriage as an expedient issue, um, taking anger as an expedient issue. And the difference between, uh, I mean, the reason that I also respect Buckley is not because you know, every single issue uh, is one where we can find agreement. You know, he hardly, I hardly agree with everything he wrote and I hardly agree with his style of going about business in all right. cases. But, you know, I respect the fact that he had principles. And how, can you, how can you tell if someone has principles? You can tell because they follow those principles and they end up in some weird places uh, based on, you know, the people that they... Uh, align with most of the time. And what am I talking about specifically? Well, if you look at late stage William F. Buckley, he came out for decriminalization of all sorts of drugs. Yeah. He basically said, you know, I've been thinking about this. I believe in a small government. I believe in um, the primacy of the individual. And it, it appears to me that the war on drugs is basically creating a police state draining our resources and that there are better ways to solve this problem by caring for individuals um, and basically treating this as a public health issue. You know, he came about that and he might, you know, I'm I'm not going to claim to uh, have been able to repeat the way he characterized his argument, but the point is that he came at it as a conservative and first and foremost, thought through the problem and said, okay, what is this in front of me? You know, the hardest thing is just to see what's in front of your face. Um, and he saw it as a conservative and he saw the problem and he thought, what's the, what's the solution to this problem? The solution to this problem as a conservative cannot be to increase the size of the state, empower the state, increase the, ability of the state to wield force against individuals. You know, that can't be the conservative solution to the problem. And, um, you know, the simple fact that he got there shows his integrity uh, and his commitment to his own principles. And you can respect someone for their principles. Um, I mean, like what you were saying about 
I mean, in the the obverse, you know, um, about Democrats with the gay marriage thing, the fact that so many of them um, for so many years during the Obama era had to basically hide the fact that, as you say, I mean, we all kind of knew. I mean, obviously, these people, um, you know, didn't really think that there was any good reason to um, hide behind this issue of civil unions. You know, clearly they've really believed that there should be full marriage equality, but they just were, you know, too cowardly to come out and say it. And I think that's part of the reason that, um, you know, that young, a lot of young people have gotten um, kind of impatient with and disdainful of uh, the Democratic Party. Yeah. Um, and But that's one of the reasons that, you know, someone like Buckley is, you know, he at least had a potential to do real good in America and, and really did have uh, a real good effect insofar as he was a principled man who stood against, you know, crazy conspirators, conspiratorial thinkers and uh, bigots like the, um, you know, anti-Semites that you described. And the problem, of course, as you, yeah, I totally agree. Um, you know, he created space for um, an ideological shift that, um, you know, had a momentum of its own. And once it got to the point, as you described, where, you know, there were diminishing marginal returns, it didn't stop. It just kept ramming forward, um, not accounting for the fact that the, that the context had changed. And, you know, a diet, when you're a little overweight, you know, diet and exercise is a good thing. But if you have already starved yourself, uh, and you have no more body fat, if you continue to diet and exercise, yeah. you know, you're going to, you're going to do irreparable, potentially irreparable damage to your body. Um, and, um, yeah, and I think, I think, you know, in terms of what the solution is, I think the solution has got to be, um, criticizing again, criticizing people for the right reasons, not, not not uh, succumbing to the urge to you know, there's all this talk about you know uh, Michelle Obama when we go when they go low we go high you know a lot of a lot of um, leftists are angry with that because they see themselves as being represented by people who uh, you know are bringing a pillow to a knife fight yeah. basically um, but I think that is. You know, if if we get to the point where our politicians and our intellectuals on all sides of the spectrum are really all just saying, yeah, we got to get knives, you know, it's a knife fight, we got to keep fighting with knives, then... Um, we just all end up bleeding. We just all end up bleeding, and it's not going to be... Um, you know, it's not just going to be... Um, it's not just a matter of manners being violated and, you know, our uh, bourgeois white sensibilities being offended. Um, it's the matter that societies only function when decent people generally trust each other. And um, the deliberative body of Congress only functions when the members involved are aware that at some point they can just make a deal and 
get down to brass tacks and figure out, okay, you want this, I want that. Let's find a way to get as much of what we both want as possible so that we can actually get um, some legislation passed. And if everything is constantly a knife fight, that'll never happen. Um, but that's also the, the shift from ideas to where they are now is represented by the Grover Norquist no tax increase pledge. Right. Which is outsourcing your own judgment to somebody else by saying, I promise I will never raise taxes under any, any circumstances. Well, circumstances can change. Wars happen. You should raise taxes to pay for a war. Like the situations in which it would make sense not to raise taxes to pay for war, it's so theoretical or I mean unlikely that I don't I don't see that as being a good yeah. idea. You go to a war, you raise taxes, but you've promised not to. And so we ended up with what we did in two thousand three where we had two wars going at once while cutting taxes and the deficits exploded. And yeah. these people who cared about deficits when it was Clinton or Obama suddenly didn't care. And suddenly Dick Cheney says deficits don't matter. And that's an example of being intellectually inconsistent and throwing things away. And I think someday we will probably have to have a similar talk about what's wrong with the left so that we can appear, um, because there's a lot to be said about that that we've also just touched on here. And again, in these early days, I want our listener to know that, um, that we're not just rabid partisans here, that we want to get to this less we want to get to a more dispassionate view of what are the issues with the parties and how can we fix them and unfortunately we have only scratched the surface but at an hour and five minutes into the podcast now i think i'm going to have to call it because we need to be more disciplined than our 97 minute gab fest last week uh any last thoughts david um uh yeah i just think that um there is a difference between um, there's a difference between wanting your ideas to have a chance to work and uh, destroying the mechanism of government through which different ideas are implemented and um, just one piece from the news. I won't. I won't go on it too long, uh, too great length about this. But there was a really interesting report in the Washington Post about Maine, where the state government had um, increased the minimum wage. You know, there's this fight for fifteen, the fifteen dollar minimum wage, um, that is a big issue in the Democratic Party, determining you know what whether to you know whether to raise the minimum wage federally and to what level to raise it. And there's this experiment in Maine where uh, the state government increased the minimum wage. As a result of which, um, restaurant workers mobilized and called their state senators and state representatives and said, look, if you raise the minimum wage, people are no longer going to tip me. And, you know, I... My income is either going to go down or I'll actually just be fired because the restaurant can't afford it. And so you have a moment where um, the representatives tried something and then the people they were claiming to represent and work for uh, actually said, you know, you're trying to give me something. I don't want it because it's going to sort of it's going to screw up this balance that is treating me okay as it is. And um you know, I think a lot of people probably look at this and they see a catastrophe, you know, this just 
uh, incompetence and bumbling. You know, they pass a law and then they they repeal it, right? Like, how could that not be incompetence? Right. It seems to me that's what our that's what a free people ruling itself looks like. I agree. You try it. You know, this is what the founders wanted. They wanted the laboratories of democracy where um, someone has an idea, you put it out there, you see what it looks like, you see how it works, and then if it works, you do more of it, and if it doesn't work, you get rid of it. Um, and that kind of approach, to the extent that this is a sign that, that's, that that is still possible in America, where, you know, they passed the minimum wage increase, that actually happened, and then they got feedback and they said, you know what, this isn't a good idea. We gotta, we gotta uh, dial it back and figure out something else. That to me, you know, it's not incompetence. It's not bumbling. It's a vigorous attempt by a free people to rule itself, and it's actually a sign of. Um, I mean, to me, it was a sign of uh, a bright future ahead. You know, where where things like that are still possible. And that cuts back to what you said before about the intellectual sitting in his chair who's, who you know, doesn't speak Kurdish, doesn't go out and, experiment, and and do these things. Well, then you've got the people who are saying that that would be a boneheaded move who said, well, obviously you should never have tried it. I sat in my chair and I theorized and figured out exactly. it's bad. And we're here saying some things have to be tried. Some things have to be experimented with. You cannot do um, – you cannot just sit there and assume that you know how things are going to go. Um, and I think that's that's a good point to end on. Um, well, uh, this was this was a wonderful talk, David. I love having these uh, every week. This has been been going great. And uh, it's time for my soapbox sign off. Um, to, today, we're going to touch on a very important issue that um, really I think comes up a lot in politics, and uh, we need to have a clear way of thinking about this and an agreement on basic principles. And I am naturally talking about Balrog wings. Now, for those of you who are not familiar, a Balrog is a creature of shadow and flame from the Lord of the Rings. You may recall having the, the great demon that Gandalf fought on the bridge of Khazad-dûm in the Mines of Moria in the first Lord of the Rings movie. That creature was depicted with wings. Such creatures are almost universally depicted in art for Lord of the Rings with wings, but not entirely universally. There is actually a deep debate that you can read endless amounts about online about whether or not Balrogs should be depicted with wings, citing lines from Lord of the Rings, citing ancillary letters from Tolkien himself, citing the comments of Tolkien's son Christopher, who is sort of the keeper of the lore now. And the reason I bring this up is because the pro-wing argument has a very good case. The line uh, that brings us up from, from the Fellowship of the Ring, the chapter The Bridge of Khazad-dûm, refers to, has this passage as the Balrog engages Gandalf. It stepped forward slowly on the bridge, and suddenly it drew itself up to a great height, and its wings were spread from wall to wall. Well, there you have it. There is a sentence that says its wings were spread from wall to wall. It has wings. It has to. The sentence, it's right there. If you're having this debate with somebody and you both just picked up the book and you read this passage, they point to that and they say, it has wings. It says wings. Why are we arguing about this? This is something that we see very frequently in politics. Um, 
one example of where people will simply turn off their minds and say, this is all I need to see. I don't need to hear anything else. I'm not even going to listen to anything else you say. When they had that leak of the East Anglia climate change emails, and they were talking about a graph where somebody said, remind me again how to do that trick to hide the cooling. Well, you caught them in a conspiracy. There's a trick. They're hiding the cooling. They referred to tricking people to hide the fact that things weren't actually warming. What more do we need to talk about? There's no discussion. These are frauds. I'm not even going to listen to whatever crazy thing you have to say that is going to try to cover for this because that's absurd. Well, it turns out when you actually delve into it, the reason that those East Anglia emails got exonerated by every independent panel that looked at them is because they're referring to a bunch of very specific things that you have to actually look at and think about in detail to understand visualization of, of, of data, to understand how the data had to be adjusted because of uh, different stations and different locations and moving where you're getting the data from. There are a lot of things that have to be controlled for when you do an analysis like that. And you have to take the time to stop and understand those things and understand what it is they're doing. But because people are generally not great at understanding statistics, not great at understanding scientific modeling, people said, says right there, it's a trick to hide the cooling. They're, they're lying. It's a conspiracy. And so this brings us back to Balrog Wings. You see, a few lines earlier, there is a passage that says, Gandalf stood in the middle of the span, leaning on his staff in his left hand, but in his other hand, glamdring gleamed cold and white. His enemy halted again, facing him, and the shadow about it reached out like two vast wings. And so we see that what seemed to be a clear case of wings being spread from wall to wall could just as easily be seen as a metaphor, well, a simile that turns into a metaphor, of, the, of, of, of a shadow that is like wings, and then the wings themselves are spread. From that phrasing, it actually seems a little bit stronger to say they don't have wings. Why would it have a shadow like wings and then also have wings? That would be absurd. But so many people still in these very involved arguments, they get into so many ancillary materials on the Internet. Some say that's the beginning and the end. Have no more discussion on Balrog wings. And I'm here to tell you that a lot of these issues are more complicated than they look. And sometimes you can refer to wings and have them not be wings. Sometimes you can refer to a trick to hide the cooling, and it's not a trick to hide the cooling. It's a perfectly legitimate thing. When people tell you the issue's more complicated, please listen to why. You should listen to them. Maybe they are coming up with something absurd. Maybe it doesn't stand up to scrutiny. But you can't start with a perspective that you've already seen something dispositive if people are telling you there's more detail that contextualizes it and makes sense. And that's the thought I want to leave you with tonight. Uh, have a great week, everybody. I hope to see you again next week.